I worked on this when I was at Microsoft. GitHub looked at this and said, hey, actually, this can solve one of our problems because what happened pre-libgit2 adding merge was that when you went to merge a pull request, GitHub would shuffle a bunch of bytes on disk for the, it, it would do a checkout of your repository on disk in a temp folder and then run the merge because it had to and then figure out what happened on disk. And it's like, what? Um, and so moving to libgit2, all of a sudden they just ran the merge, didn't have to update any files on disk, just like had the results in memory or in a in a tree in the in the actual like, you know, in, in an object. I didn't realize this when I was when I was working on it. And so and of course GitHub was like, oh cool, we just like massively improved the speed of our uh, uh of the way we handle pull requests. And I was like, oh cool. You know, like it just accidents accidental benefit. Ed, thank you very much for taking the time to go on this episode with me. As usual, I want to start and dive right in. You are the author and maintainer of libgit2. Uh, what is libgit2 and how did you get involved in SEM tools to begin with? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I am the maintainer I, and author is a little, I, I didn't start the project. Okay. Um, so I, I don't want to take credit for that. What is libgit2? Well, libgit2 was actually started by a guy named Sean Pierce. Uh, Sean was one of the you know, contributors to Git itself, um, you know, the, the Git command line cool. application yeah. that you that you run. And he wanted to be able to take Git and put it in another application. I actually think what he really wanted to do was be able to call Git from, from Java, although I, I don't know. One of the, the really unfortunate things of, about this is that, that Sean was like a super prolific uh, developer and, and uh, like engineering manager as well, uh, passed away a few years ago. So like he he worked on Git, he started the libgit2 project, then he went and started the jgit project. Um, so like uh, uh, really, you know, a, a, a quiet luminary of, of, of version control software engineering. That's a big loss to the community for sure, yeah. 100%. And, and just a, like by all accounts, an incredible person, like a, a great human, so. Um, often you see you see people who are, are great engineers um, who uh, are, are missing like that that human aspect, um, and Sean was was not amongst them. From from by all accounts, again, I I never had the the fortune of meeting him, but um, but yeah. So Sean started the project, um, and I, like. I, I mentioned, I think he wanted to call it from Java because he he left libgit two and went and worked on on jgit. Um, and so like jgit is used uh, at least internally at google to run their version control systems uh like the the back end i think for and and somebody i hope can correct me because I've, I've never been a googler for sort of their 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 version control server what what handles android ultimately but like so so he kind of went started started libgit2 and and then left it uh and then the community took over um and in fact who took over was uh was github so Scott Chacone, one of the founders of GitHub, uh, came in and started working on libgit2. Vicent Marti, who was a super early um, engineer at GitHub, started working on it. And the, the rationale there is that GitHub uses a mix of Git and libgit2 to, uh, to serve your, your repositories. Like when you run git clone, it talks to a git daemon on the back end. But when you like actually navigate on github.com, the UI, you'll talk to some mix of Git and libgit2, depending on 
a number so, of factors. So let's clarify um, this a little bit. Like, what yeah. is the, what is the demarcation line? What's the delineation line? What, That's what's a great the, question. Yeah. So, uh, so when you run Git on the command line, you're talking to Git. But if you want to, uh, uh, if you're say writing some Ruby and you want to talk to a Git repository, you have two options. Well, you, you have more than two options, but like. Let's focus on on the on two options. One, you can run the Git command line just like you would as a user. The problem is you're running the Git command line just like you would as a user, and you've got to figure out what it's telling you. It doesn't emit JSON. It doesn't emit XML. It doesn't emit. Maybe it'll emit, uh, depending on the command, some fairly regular format that's relatively easy to parse as a as a as a computer. But you often end up just kind of screen scraping the output, and that's not super ideal. Uh, enter libgit2. Um, it's a C library with, with APIs that are designed for you to call it from your application. Um, and, and so let, let's say you want to clone a Git repository, you can do that. But you can also just like get really focused on you know, whatever minutia you want to be able to render to your users. Like if you want to run history, that's really cool. We'll just give you back proper objects that you can you can put on screen or or keep parsing in, in some some other way. Um, and it's written in C, which is sort of not ideal for many, many applications, like who's writing a web app in C. The nice thing about C, though, is that it is sort of the common denominator, if you will, for 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 working with, you know, you can FFI and and I hope that you don't have to, but you you can call C from Ruby, you can call C from Rust, you can call C from Python, you can call C from absolutely every language, because that's every every language can you know FFI, which means if, if you're not familiar with that term, foreign function interface, I think. Um, but ultimately, the ability to call C from your language in .NET, it's oh I'm blanking on it. I should P invoke. You can p invoke from .NET. You can you can call it from Ruby, and so like that's that's really the value prop for for libgit two is it's the basis by C library uh, other Git libraries build on top of. So um, uh, you've got rugged uh, libgit two sharp, etc. Depending on your language. Fantastic. So just to dive a little bit deeper into this, we talked about like what's the integration mechanism or the interface, right? But what is libgit2 in terms of, is it a wrapper of Git or does it re-implement some of the functionality of Git or does it call Git in the background as a sub-process or how does it really work on that then? Yeah, it, it does not call, like, I, I don't want to screen scrape Git. And like, so we don't, you know, the, the goal of libgit2 is not to prevent you from having to screen scrape Git and I do it myself. It's actually a re-implementation. Um, and so, like early, early days, like going back to again, what like what I think was Sean Sean Pierce's goal was he looked at Git and it was not able to be used from another another application. It was a a command line interface. And he he, he looked at this and said, Well, if we're going to build a library to to do Git, to work with Git. Um, let's re-implement it, and then let's build a CLI on top of it, I think. And I, the reason I think this is because of its name. libgit2, there was no libgit1 as a, as, a, as a standalone product. The only libgit is the, 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 the static git library that git itself builds. When you, when you compile it, it will emit a libgit and then link a bunch of its applications to that. Um, and so my, my belief, 
and again, I wasn't around for this. My belief is that the genesis of libgit2 was uh, to be the, the shared library that you could A, call from another application, but also get itself built on top of. So it is a re-implementation. So it, it, you know, when you run git, the, the moral equivalent of, of git log with libgit2, it will actually like go open your .git folder, start looking around, poke around at objects, start reading them in, um, you know, branches, uh, stuff like that, um, and, and try to make sense of that world. So it's, uh, it's challenging to, 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 to do that, to be a re-implementation of Git. When you start poking at Git, and I think you might know this, when you start poking at Git, you're like, this is really elegant and easy. Like object files, like make a lot of sense. References make a lot of sense. And then you, you keep poking at it and you're like, well, actually there's these weird corner cases when, when you've got a ref log and you need to change, rename a branch because everything's like sort of lined up in path space, you can't have a, a, a you know, you, you need to do something special with ref logs when you change a branch, you know, to a, from a folder to a file, et cetera, et cetera. 100%. So there's actually a lot of like really complicated edge cases that you you don't expect. That's exactly it. Like I, I'm, I'm starting, I've started a series where I'm re-implementing Git from scratch and Go. And on the surface, it looks like, oh, this is a fun project. But then you, you start diving into it and you're like, oh, this is really elegant. Like how the objects are structured, how the, you know, the, the, the blobs are, are structured, the commits, so on and so forth. And everything sort of creates this framework for you to work efficiently, you know, with all of these um, items and, and objects. But then, as you mentioned, the edge cases start hitting you and slapping you in the face from here and there. And you need to tackle this one and this one. And then when you need to make changes across a lot of different stuff, then things become way more complicated. Yeah. Um, and yes, I totally understand this. So you mentioned that libgit is a re-implementation of git of sorts. And I think this is a very good design choice, to be honest, just because like, I think it's it's great to have like a core library and then you can build CLI tools around of it, around it. You can build APIs on top of it. It's, it's, it's a pretty good model. But git is now more of a toolbox rather than just a single tool. So how does libgit keep up with all of the new features, you know, that are coming in? Poorly. You know, when I got involved with the project, we had a handful of people who were working on it more or less as their day job, um, including me. Like I was at Microsoft at the time. Um, we wanted to bring Git into our tools. Um, so I, I was working on Visual Studio. Uh, and what is now called uh, Azure DevOps. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted to add a Git client to Visual Studio. We wanted to add a Git server to Azure DevOps. Um, and what we look, you know, we we thought about bringing Git in itself, um, you know, and, and trying to figure out that. But like at the time, uh, Git on Windows, which is where Visual Studio runs, yeah. was not amazing. And Git, and as a server. Um, so on Azure DevOps, um, it was even less amazing. It, it, it's, you know, Git for Windows has had a ton of investment since then. So it's, it's, um, it, it's much more mature than it was at the time. But we, we were like, well, I, I actually think that uh, libgit2 is the answer uh, uh, for us here. Um, and so like I was working on it full time. Uh, there were a number of GitHub engineers that were working on it full time. And so, like the velocity was 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 huge then. Um, it was also very image libgit two itself was very immature then. So, like we've we've sort of reached a level of maturity where um, 
most of the things work. There, there are things that are are missing. Uh, for example, um, you know, we don't have support for Git LFS in the mm -hmm. box. Um, I guess neither does Git itself. Um, I would okay. like to see that. We uh, we don't have support for some of the newer features uh, that that Git is putting out. Like we do have. Um, uh, sorry, I'm going to get like super low level for a second. Go we do it. have multi-pack ind indices, which is a nice performance improvement. Um, but we don't have um, uh, some of the like narrow clone support. Um, and we should. Like that's something that I want want to have. Um, but like I'm sort of the primary, you know, person writing code for it these days. Um, and so like I'm sorry, I'm I'm going to work on the the it, I'm going to scratch my own itch, if you will. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like what I'm working on right now is like not a new feature at all to keep up with Git. It's that our clones are really slow, um, and we need. And so, like, I've been working on making that faster. Um, I think that's a, a, a an important thing to do. Um, but, you know, I also only have so many hours in the day. I've got a day job that doesn't have anything to do with libgit2 at all. So this is just, like, really a hobby project for me. So, so we're not keeping up with Git. Um, now, so the question is, is that, is that okay? I think that the answer is yes. Um, I would love to do do more with like the new functionality that gets doing. Um, but at the same time, a ton of people are using libgit2 and are reasonably happy with it. Um, you know, I, I'm seeing new tools built on top of it every day. There's a new tool called Git Butler that I'm super pumped about uh, from, from Scott Chacon and a couple of other people. Scott, once again, one of the founders of, of GitHub, super excited to see what he's doing. I think it's going to be Going to be incredible. It's it's like by invitation only at the moment. I'm I'm super excited about the beta. Um, so like in some sense, the you know I'm not I'm not too unhappy with our velocity. Um, but you know, like I said, it's it's a tough balance to know to know what to do. On the first episode of the season, I was talking to Simon Willison, and um, you know he he was the co-creator of Django. He created Dataset, and um, we were talking about open source models and you know, how, how, how difficult it is to maintain some popular projects. So if I am to ask you the same question, what do you need so that the community can keep on thriving and that the libgit2 keeps on, you know, uh, being maintained? Because I understand the pressure of being an open source maintainer. I, I work on a number of open source uh, projects. Like at GitHub, we have a lot of... Um, open source uh, actions, for example. And it's very difficult for us to maintain them because we have our day jobs, but at the same time, we have to maintain these. The community is very you know, active. They want new features. They want to support certain edge cases, and it's, it's extremely difficult. So my question to you is, what do you need to be successful? I would love, you know, I, I think that we were at our best, the libg project itself, when it was, um, when it was something that, I, I'm gonna pick a person. I, I need Carlos Martin Nieto. That's who I need. Uh, um, like, or or Vicente Martí. Like, these are the, the these are a couple of people that were core contributors to libgit2 back in the day, and their presence was incredible. Like, the ability to pair with with them was great. They both of them thought about problems completely differently than than I did, which was amazing. Um, because I would look at a problem and say like, wow, that's gonna be hard. And they would go and solve it. Similarly, they would look at a problem and I, I hope this happened, I, I, I don't know for sure. And they would say, wow, that's hard. And I would go and solve it. 
Um, you know, I, I, I think that they bring a lot of different talents to the table. So I would say what I, what I really need is a, is a, a partner in crime who thinks about things completely differently to me, um, that is going to challenge me and tell me I'm wrong. Um, you know, it, I, I, I picked those two out. We've also had Patrick Steinhardt on the project who also thinks about like really challenged me in a lot of ways. Um, and, and, and the project was better for it, for each of their, their contributions. Um, and so like, that's, that's what I, what I need. And that's not what, and it's funny that you bring up actions. Cause I, I also worked on the actions team for a little while and, um, the challenges are really different. Like I get to say, this is my, my hobby project and I can get away with that. Uh, when, when somebody looks at, at GitHub actions, you know, you're, you, you have the same problem, which is that like, this is, uh, you know, a, a, a percentage of what you, what you focus on and the community's like, they don't get it. Right. They're like, Oh, um, why doesn't GitHub put like one engineer or something on all of these, these actions, except that that doesn't like now that I've, I've been on, on, on both sides of it, that doesn't scale because like the the needs for each action like some days every action needs a lot of work and some days no action needs a lot of work and so like you it's it's really super hard to plan um i'm actually really sympathetic to to that problem more than i am my own like i i just get to to say hey it's busy at work it's busy at home nothing's going on on libya too sorry y'all and nobody nobody really minds i think some people probably mind a little but nobody nobody really minds 100%. Like the problem on our end is is more of um expectations maybe as you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. And and it's also a difficult prioritization problem. Uh, how do you strategically prioritize the work on these um and and they're important. We did publish them, you know, and at the end of the day we're responsible for maintaining them. Um but yeah, it becomes a tricky problem. Um you mentioned like a few superhero level engineers uh or i don't know i don't know about terminology a lot of like some people don't really like 10x engineers and all of that stuff but i think there are 10x engineers within certain contexts what do you think made these folks you mentioned you know super good at what they do in your opinion i don't know um <laughs> what's their magic I don't know. I like Vicent is magical. He he's one of those people that's just able to jump in and solve any any problem that is in mm. in front of them. Um and I don't I don't know where that came from. How long have um, they been in the industry? Uh, that quite not, that like oh. so so when when Vicent was working on Libgit2, he came in as a Google Summer of Code uh intern. Okay. Uh for GitHub working on Libgit2. He was a university student. Wow. Like a disaffected undergrad in computer science who just wanted to write video games. Instead, like came in and worked on LibGit2 and then worked on a bunch of other stuff at GitHub. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, don't know how. Carlos Nieto, I also mentioned. Uh, sorry, Carlos Martin uh, also came in as a um, uh, as a Google Summer of Code uh, intern to GitHub and, and LibGit2. Um, so maybe there's something, something there. I, I don't, I don't really know like, um, uh, what it is about them, but they, there are definitely some engineers that I've worked with that are just incredible. And actually libgit two had a bunch, um, you know, Russell Belfer, uh, was, was on the project. Also an amazing engineer, something about 
we got really lucky on libgit2 uh and i'm still like uh uh cashing those checks right like i i'm they built it and i now i get to say like oh i'm the maintainer of this thing that like you know that all these amazing people worked on awesome i I definitely relate to this. I see a lot of great new talent come in and you get surprised by their capabilities, you know, and, and what they can do. Uh, and I think this type of project attracts a certain type of talent. I think also, you know, not, not everybody gets not only the ambition to work on something like this, but also the curiosity to work on it and the, the how do you call it, the confidence to come in and contribute and add value, right? And I think for you to be able to do that, you need to have a certain set of skills that you've honed over a certain period of time. And nowadays, I'm not really surprised by, by new talent. Like maybe in our time, accessibility to machines and computers and things like that was much more difficult. But nowadays, like every five-year-old has an iPad in their hands that are learning how to code and all of that stuff, right? Which definitely gives them like a very big advantage to maybe us uh, when we started our careers. Yeah, I think you might be right. I, um, I was very fortunate. Like I, I got a Commodore 64, like it, it, Commodore 64s went on like fire sale at one point, right? Like, and I was the beneficiary of that. Like I got one as a, as a kid and I would go to the library and get like compute magazine and I would type in the assembly and it would of course never run. Um, but like I, I learned so much from that and, you know, I knew a couple of other people who had computers growing up as kids, but it was a rarity. And, and now I agree that the democratization of this technology is, is incredible. Um, you know, not only do you have an iPad or perhaps, you know, some tablet like this, this stuff is, is at a much lower price point. It's much more accessible, but also like cloud infrastructure. You can just like go create a, I'm going to shameless plug. You can just go create a Vercel account and start deploying your website. You can run code. You can, you can write JavaScript and run it like everywhere in the world. And you don't have to pay like until you, you know, to, unless you get like, scale higher yeah. in, in popularity and and yeah that's that's incredible to me i, I was that. super fortunate but like i think the democratization is going to do amazing things for us. definitely and and the educational tools like the amount of free content the courses youtube alone like it's 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 maddening and i always tell the future generation you have no excuse if you're trying to break into this field like uh, and I might sound like the old guy, you know, like uh, screaming at, at the younger ones, but they're really fortunate in my opinion. Like w back in the day, I had to go to a coffee shop with like 10 floppy disks and spend a couple of hours renting internet to learn a little bit of HTML, you know? Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, it's, it's much, much more difficult. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, have you had the chance to play with um, Meta's SEM, Sapling, by any chance? I, I haven't played with it uh uh, in earnest. Uh, so I've, I've spent a lot of time talking to their engineers. I've played around with it uh, a little bit, um, actually when it was called Mononoke, um, prior to, prior to its, its renaming and, and open sourceization, reopen sources. I, I don't know how to say that. I think that it's really, I think that it's really cool. I think that it, you know, Google has done something similar in, in, Piper, I think it's called, um, which like they there's there's some level at which a company gets to where they're like, well, we've outgrown X, where X is per force get 
um, you know, mercurial, whatever. We're going to go write our own. And it's disappointing to me that none of these have really caught fire, in part because, like, they didn't really care about the open sourceization of them. Um, which I think makes sense, right? Like you're 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 not your goal as a as an internal engineering team who is working on your internal version control system is to make your internal customers happy. It's not to go like build a build a uh, something that's super. Put it out there it becomes much more difficult yeah. to maintain, and super. and and I can understand. Uh, there's really yeah. no motivation unless there's like a big advantage that comes from putting it out there. That's right. That's right. And and so like Facebook. Uh, sorry, Meta. Meta did put it out there, um, and I good. I think that's great, um, but it doesn't seem to have like really caught fire. It's and I, I say that not knowing. Maybe some like huge enterprise companies have started like using it, um, but I, you know, I'm not using it on a day to day basis. You're not using it on a day to day basis. No, um, I'm just curious. And so it hasn't. It. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it hasn't caught fire like in the in the developer mindset like broadly. Um, I think Microsoft came the closest to this with because um, they not only do they they have internal engineering needs for the Windows team, for the Office team, for the you know whatever Bing team who have huge code bases that don't really fit in a traditional. It's not like you can just get push it up to, um, you know, some Git daemon and, and have it work. It's not not going to work at all. Um, way too big for that. You know, like when 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 Linus created Git, he was like, oh, it's made for big, big repositories like the Linux kernel, which, you know, is big. But it's not Microsoft <laughs> but, Office. Yeah, big. <laughs> yeah, it's not Microsoft Office. Um, and you can argue whether like that's a good thing to have a repo that big or a bad thing to have a repo that big, but the repo is that big. And and that's ultimately the fact. And so like your version control system needs to deal with that. And so Microsoft also is trying to sell you um, you know, version control tools. And so like I, I think that they went in you know, and I, I'm super biased here because I, I was part of this team. But you know, they went in with the the most uh, you know clear direction of we need this to support our internal engineering tools, and we would like to make this available to the world. Um, and you know, still that didn't really catch fire in, in terms of um, you know VFS or Git or Scalar as it's now known. Um, but what what I do think that that Microsoft is doing well is like pushing these you know, some of these changes back to make Git scale more. So you've got things like narrow clone. These aren't just like Microsoft only innovations, but like, you know, multi-pack indices, stuff like that. Um, you know, some of them were pushed by Microsoft and or GitHub engineers. Some of them were like collaborated on, but like, I, I like that vision. Um, but still like, this isn't things that people are using on a daily basis. Like why maybe, if I ran Git clone, maybe I should get, uh, you know, it should be super fast even on the Linux kernel or even on like something smaller like the libgit2 repository, the Git repository. Because from my experience, I see different levels of understanding of the tool. Um, so there are the folks who will never hit these 
uh, boundaries of scale. Um, a lot of the startups, you know, just use Git. I know a lot of teams that have never even thought about work trees or sparse checkouts or anything of that sort, right? Because they never, ever needed them. Their, their, their work is just, you know, clone, uh, stage, push, rebase, this sort of stuff. And they never hit these problems. And the biggest problem they have maybe is mistakenly pushing some uh, binaries or stuff like that. But uh, yeah, the, the bigger enterprises, they definitely have that problem. And I were, when I worked as part of the services uh, team at GitHub, this was definitely a daily conversation we were having with different enterprises. And optimizing Git repositories is definitely a big deal. Rewriting history was, was also a big part of this, these, uh, this optimization effort. But I, I personally think, and this is my personal opinion, that something is missing and, and we definitely need one more thing to come like the next evolution of git is is now very necessary at least for to tackle this 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 scale um and i'm not sure how that looks like to be honest i mean i have opinions um but but i agree with you 100 like why why are we having these conversations you know in 2023 about optimizing your git repository like you you I think your example was great. Like, oh, they had a problem because they pushed a binary. Like, why is this a problem? Like, why why do we have Git LFS separate from, from Git? Like, is there no way to put a, a, an ISO image in a Git repository and have that make sense in 2020, in 2023? Like, why why can't I just, why can't everything just handle this this for me? And I think that that's sort of like what, what I would like to see as the next evolution, not binary specifically, but like why, why when I do a clone, like, so for something that's like a hobby project, like a hello world, fine, give me all of history. But like, if I just start running, get clone on the Linux kernel, why don't I just get a, a shallow clone by default that like will fill itself in. If I start, like, if I want to check out another branch, like, okay, you know, most people are connected all the time. When I started out in building version control tools, it was a long, long time ago, we talked about the developer on the airplane experience because, you know, airplanes didn't have internet back then. So I'm really dating myself, I know. I guess talking about building version controls tools that weren't Git really dates myself as well. But but like that was our, that, that was like mind blowing to us. Like we want to build, like, uh, uh, you know, version control tools that could work offline. And now we take it for granted that they only work offline. Like there's there's probably a middle ground. I think we've really overcorrected uh, into distributed version control tools to, to, to where we think that they couldn't possibly work without, or, you know, require an internet connection to work. And I think that like we can, re, you know, recalibrate on the middle ground a little bit more. Um, I actually think that that would be the, what I would like to see. Because times have changed, you know, and yes. they change so fast that these these tools, it's very difficult for them to keep up, especially also because they're not commercialized in a way that there's like a big enterprise behind them that's driving their evolution in a way, you know? Uh, and, and it's very tricky. And I can understand one of the value proposition for Git was literally for it to be 100% distributable and for it to be fully workable from a, a local copy. And, and that was what made it great. Um, but I think right now with, you know, the speed of all of the internet that we have, the connectivity that we have, uh, that is not as big of a deal as it was before. I mean, 
it, it, it doesn't need to become the default and it could be like a feature that is enabled on a need basis. While you're correct, we need to optimize a little bit on the other end of the spectrum. Um, great. What are some of the most memorable technical challenges you worked on solving? Um, you know, wh whether in libgit or any of the other work that you've done uh, before, is there anything that, you know, comes to mind that was very, very interesting? I think that the most interesting thing I worked on in libgit 2 was, was, was doing merge. Um, and actually, in some sense, it was... I approached it like, oh, okay, we're we're just going to go add merge functionality into libgit too. It's 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 core to a version control system. It doesn't matter if you can branch if you can't can't get that code back. Like, what's the point of branching if you're if you're not going to merge it back? And it was something that libgit two lacked um, when I started looking at the project. Something that we knew we needed. I'd worked on a bunch of version control tools before, so I wasn't like, oh, this is going to be hard. Um, there were. Uh, uh, tricky elements to it but like what what was really cool to me um was was how well um how 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 well it worked and i don't mean that from a technical sense actually and so i guess i'm not answering your question but but like we i, I set out to just like go add add merge and and have an api for it um and one of the nice thing i i guess this is this is what was elegant about it was that libgit2 as an as an api as a as a as a thing that like just needs to go do some work like the way i approached merge was like well i've got a tree you know whether that you know a branch it points to a commit points to a tree etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, i've got a tree i've got another tree they've got a common ancestor tree and i need to go go do that work and emit a new a new tree Actually, we we put it into the index um, when we do a merge, but that's that's a little bit beside the point. The and and so like that that was just how I approached the problem. Feels relatively straightforward as I say it. That's not the way Git approached the problem, at least not originally. When you do a merge in Git, or that's not true today. Like they've actually reworked the merge engine in Git, thankfully. But it would just like splat a bunch of files on disk, and. Um, that's cool, I guess, but like that's not the level of abstraction I think in. Um, like, I want to produce a, a, a data structure. Um, I don't just want to like splat uh, into the working directory the results of the merge and what happens when you have a conflict. Well, you update the index, but in a weird way, yada yada. The takeaway though was that like um, I, I worked on this when I was at Microsoft. GitHub looked at this and said, "Hey, actually, this can solve one of our problems because what happened pre libgit to adding merge." was that when you went to merge a pull request, GitHub would shuffle a bunch of bytes on disk for the, it, it would do a checkout of, of uh, your repository on disk in a temp folder and then run the merge because it had to and then figure out what happened on disk. And it's like, what? Um, and so moving to libgit2, all of a sudden they just ran the merge, didn't have to update any files on disk, just like, had the results in memory or in a in a tree in the in the actual like you know in in an object. I didn't realize this when I was when I was working on it, um, and so and of course GitHub was like, "Oh, cool! We just like massively improved the speed of our of, course. Uh, uh, of the way we handle pull requests." And I was like, "Oh, cool! You know, That's like it just like, accidental accidental benefit." People um, don't so know. Really 
people don't know the magic behind clicking on that merge pull request button. That's probably <laughs> the most complicated button, uh, you know, in the entirety of GitHub. No nowadays, there are a lot of complications, but like that for the longest time probably was the most complicated. Was, yeah. Thing. Yeah. Especially then when it's like, yeah. oh, we have to, we have to check out on disk and then update it. It's like, Whoa. wow. Um, that was, that was a little, a little gnarly. So I was like super proud of that, like accidentally. Um, Definitely. When I found out that, and so for for a long time, and I, I'm not sure that this is true anymore. I think that um, uh, at least GitHub has moved over to the new Git merge engine, which is uh, merge dash or merge or. Um, it's got a funny name because the I, I think maybe there's more to it, but the way you specify uh, a merge uh, engine in Git is that dash s, so you would run Git merge dash sort. ORT, uh, I think, um, clever name. Anyway, uh, the I, so I think GitHub has moved over to that now. But like for a long time, every time you opened a pull request on Bitbucket, GitLab, uh, uh, GitHub, SourceHut, you know, any hosting provider, it was ultimately running libgit2 to do the merge, which I was like, I, I was really proud of. Like this little, like I added it so that we could we could put it in Visual Studio and Azure DevOps. Um, like it, it, it powered everybody's pull requests so, so, or merge requests, if you call it that. So I, I was super, super duper proud of that. But like, actually, that wasn't like a super hard technical technical challenge. Like three way merge is a well well understood problem. The hard part of merging is is understanding where your base is, and Git makes that pretty easy. Actually, like in in previous version control tools that weren't based on a DAG, it was always hard to figure out like if I have a branch. A and a branch B, where did they come from? Like what you, you would record that that somewhere. And then when you did a merge, you would record that. And so like figuring out bases was super hard. Uh, this was like the reason that that branching and merging was like sort of flaky. Uh, flaky is not the right word. It implies um, that it that it, that it was buggy, perhaps, but it was like super complicated in a version control system like Team Foundation version control. Um, because like it, oh, it was, it was gnarly. And then people would do a baseless merge, which throws out the common ancestor entirely. And it's never what you want, but like it would get around some of these problems and you'd get gnarly conflicts instead. So like, anyway, but the actual three-way merge functionality is, is just really well solved. And so like, this wasn't like a technical challenge, definitely the, the hardest technical challenge I think that I've ever, um, uh, dealt with was, uh, around the NTLM authentication authentication protocol, um, which was not a well-published spec, um, and we had to reverse engineer it uh, a bit. Um, it, some people had already done some reverse engineering, especially the Samba team. Um, but like we had to, when I was at TeamPrize before, um, we were working on a, a system that talked to Microsoft, again, Azure DevOps, uh, it was called Team Foundation Server at the time. But we needed to support NTLM too, and we couldn't. So like, we had to go make that work. That was that was definitely the, the one of the tougher technical challenges I've been a part of. Uh, Ed, this has been very, very insightful. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about your career. Um, you were at GitHub prior to the acquisition, if I recall. Um, and I remember also you maybe left one or two years after I joined. Uh, what was GitHub like? Uh, at that point in time, GitHub was an early startup. At that, when when I started, it was um, you know we were big enough that we thought that we had it all figured out, but we were small enough that we didn't. Um, and so we 
and and it was a bunch of really 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 smart people which is great a lot a lot of the time and some of the time when you just need to go get something done um you're you're frustrated by the intelligence and which sounds weird but um what i mean by that is like every problem uh and not just technical problems even business problems we would always look at it and go like well let's boil it down to first principles and it's like no Enterprise sales has a, okay, that's a bad example. I, I actually thought the enterprise sales team at GitHub back then was great, but like, I'll, I'm just picking an example. Like enterprise sales is well-defined. You don't go reinvent enterprise sales. You find the, you, 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 you hire some people that have, that, that are Done experts in this and you yeah. just let them go. Exactly. Right. Like there's a, there's a rhythm to this. Um, and, and, and GitHub was like super, was too smart for its own good sometimes. And we would just like reinvent processes that every other company had already figured out. And we would do it poorly. And ultimately we would snap to some process that some other company had figured out and, and it would be more successful. So it was a little bit, um, it, was, it was challenging sometimes. Like certainly like writing code was great. Um, you know, I, I worked with some like incredible, incredible uh, engineers um and and so that was like super super duper fun but like and i would have loved to have have stuck around in a sense like the reason i left was because i didn't realize i i realized i was no longer a software engineer i had come up from small like a small company um you know i was like engineer number three or four at this um version control software company that got bought by microsoft and um Microsoft let us keep running like we had been in a sense. Not really. They definitely brought in a lot of their their overhead. And I was like, oh, I'm this is stifling me. Uh, this is terrible. But what I hadn't realized was like, I as a as a software engineer, my title was, you know, uh, senior SDE at Microsoft. I was um I was still talking to customers like all the time. And and that had been true at at this little company. Um, that had gotten acquired team prize because we were small. Like I, I talked to customers pre-sales. I talked to customers post-sales. I, I talked to customers all the time. Uh, and Microsoft let me keep doing that. Like one of the first things that I did after, uh, after the acquisition was like, I did a tour of, uh, uh, of the Midwest, Midwestern America talking to customers, uh, you know, going in, sitting down for a day or two uh, in a city and talking to people and then, and then moving on. That's a thing a PM does at, at Microsoft most of the time. And that hadn't really clicked to me. I'm like, I don't really understand the difference between product and engineering. You know, I was, I was, you know, an idiot. Maybe I still don't actually understand, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, and then, so I, I was like, you know, cool. I had been working on this this Git stuff, and you know, we we put Git in Visual Studio and and in Azure DevOps, um, and doing that. You know, I was working on Libgit too. I was talking to a bunch of people at GitHub. Like, I I really enjoyed hanging out with them and talking to them and blah blah blah. And so eventually, I I left and and became a software engineer at GitHub, and I absolutely hated it because I was expected to just sit down and and write code. That's not a hundred percent true, um, but like. It's it was true enough that I was like, wow, I'm this is this is not cool for me. I don't I don't enjoy this anymore. Um, so I left and I, uh, I I moved into a product role, and I I think that's a much better better fit for me. I, you know, um, I like talking to 
to people I like, you know, love it. Being so, on the product side. Great. So you you opened the door for me for my next question, and because you fall at the intersection of software engineer and product manager, right? And also like your current role is is a product manager. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think your background in software engineering gives you an advantage as a product manager, or do you think it hampers you from being able to have another perspective that is not necessarily ingrained in technical depth, if you know what I mean? Yes. I think it does both those things. Um, I, it's hard for me to imagine doing product management anywhere besides a DevTools company. Um, I, I think that my... My software engineering background is, in some sense, my secret weapon for for product. Um, I I've I you know I've interviewed at other companies. Um, you know, I started talking to you know some financial services company, for example, and I I got like halfway through the conversation, and I'm just like, I use your tools every day. Um, you know, you you power checkout for you know, all the websites on the planet. And yet, like, I'm not excited about this. I'm still excited about DevTools because I'm I'm still a software, en- I think of myself as a software engineer at heart, um, even though my title is, you know, whatever, whatever product management. That never goes away. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think so either. And so like, I'm pumped to, you know, next. Uh, so, so right now I work at a company called Vercel. We have a JavaScript framework um, called Next.js. We just had a pretty new release. It, it like sort of, upended the way that we handle like routing and architecture. And I, you know, I rewrote my personal website in it. Cause like, of course I'm going to like, what, what, what else would I do? And, and it was great. It was a great learning experience. Um, and I would never do that if, you know, I would never go build an e-commerce site for fun. If I ran up, ran product at some financial, you know, services, checkout shop, shopping cart company, and that sounds terrible to me. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that it's necessary both in terms of my ability to to get excited about the products that we build. Um, and I it certainly helps me. Like I've known product managers who don't need to understand the tech at a really deep level, but I can't not. Um, I, I like if I'm gonna go, if if you're asking me like, hey, Ed as a product manager, what do you think we should prioritize? Should we add HTTP three support to our, uh, uh, to, to our, our proxy or should we, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't know what, like, um, whatever you have to understand it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, well, like, I don't, I, I understand HTTP three enough to, to, to be able to talk about prioritization at least. Um, and so, as, you know, as I always I, say, like if if you if you don't have the knowledge or the information, someone else is driving the agenda. Be it your right. your software engineering team who have their own, you know, because the selection of information, no matter how inquisitive you are, no matter how good of a, 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 an investigator you are, right, there are always going to be information gaps that are going to be either hidden from you intentionally or unintentionally, and they're gonna cause you to have an uninformed decision or maybe a decision that doesn't necessarily is not the perfect decision. Um, And and that's why, for example, like, uh, as you mentioned, like I work with Chris Patterson a lot or we've worked like recently. I love Chris uh, because like whenever we come to a technical, um, 
like stalemate or like we need to make a decision, right? To go in a certain direction or not. Chris comes in and he's like, no, we do this because technically X. And it's perfect because we don't really need to have consultations to carry over context and, you know, um, sort of um, try to transfer as much technical information as possible in a non-technical way. Chris just understands it. He's in the industry. He knows it. We move on. Perfect. Um, you know, and, and that I think that's a big, big advantage for product managers to understand at least the, the area that they're working in at a very deep technical level. And what I love about Chris, for example, is like he, he literally created a pull request for a feature just so that he can understand a certain area of the product a little bit better, right? Like, it's, it's funny that you mentioned Chris because I was actually about to. Um, Chris was in many ways uh, the, the product manager that I looked to for, for inspiration when I moved from engineering and into, uh, uh, into product. Uh, like, I guess he, he was my mentor without him actually knowing it. But um, one of the, it's, and this I, goes back, I was going to mention this because it goes back to your question about like, is software engineering background a, a help or a hindrance in product management? And um, it can it can definitely be a hindrance as well. Like when I moved into product, Chris Patterson, uh, he may it, it may have been less charitable than this. Uh, but like what I remember from the conversation was him saying, "You're going to be fine as a product manager. What you need to be sure that you don't do is uh, do engineering, because that's going to be how you fail." Uh, as a product manager. And I, I thought about that and I'm like, cool, no problem. And I'm like, I will just not write any code. And that's that's what he meant. And it took me a while to realize what he actually meant. Cause like, I think er very early I was like, here's a spec. And like, it was a technical spec. It was like, here's how we're gonna implement all this stuff. And I was like, here's a spec. And you know, some engineer looked at this and they were like, what is this? Um, and I, I I learned very early that my job was not to be like the person who solves the technical problems anymore. My person was to, my, my, my role was to solve the, the business problems, the customer problems and to shut up and let them do the engineering. Um, and I think that that's a, a, an easy failure mode for technical product managers early in career or early in that in, in role. Um, you know, I worked with one, um, uh, you know, relatively recently within the, you know, I, I, won't, I won't name names, like super smart, totally understood the problem domain. Like it would, would, you know, we'd have a conversation and, and they'd be like, well, in, in a year we need to be here and like, just lay it out for me. And I'm like, that's absolutely right. That's, that's, that's about right. Like maybe it'll take us, you know, an extra three months to get there. Maybe a year is being really super optimistic. Maybe it'll even take longer than that, but like totally understood, you know, had the vision. Um, and then would go and and say, well, and so here's the way we're going to engineer it. And I'm like, you need to stop there. And like, yeah, the engineers were like, no, you 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 have crossed the line. Um, and it's a tough it's tough when you are when you're technical and you know how you want to go build it to to stop and, and not go build it. No, you have to trust that the other end are masters of their craft just as much as you uh, in many That's ways. Right. And, I, and I always like to summarize it. And I've had like lengthy videos to talk about this because I also see myself as a, as a multidisciplinary, you know, a professional. Um, there's the how, there's the why, there's the what, right? And, and the product manager can define or should be defining the what and the why. 
the how is left for the engineers. And that doesn't mean that everybody should stick to their lane. I'm pretty sure that people can have opinions and crisscross, right? But then the final say is, is left within these boundaries to the teams that own these areas. Um, and that doesn't mean that healthy conversations cannot be had. That doesn't mean that arguments or debates cannot be had. Um, but there are, there are areas of ownership that yeah, are I think defined. so too. Definitely. And, you know, I, one of the things I love about, you know, right now I'm at a, we're about 400, I don't know, 25, mm -hmm. 400-ish people. Uh, startup is like, oh, oh, so many of the engineers have a, an idea of the product and like the, what they want to go build. And it, it, you know, that's, that's the other thing. Like I, I said, like, I want to be in dev tools. I also want to work with engineers who just like do the job for me. Like it's, it, you know, they, they're, they're all like super, super thoughtful um, uh, uh, about the product side, um, which is, which is good and bad. Like, cause that's, that's a lot of the, the fun part. And so like, often I, I, I get stuck with the, the, the real true, you know, PM bits, like, you know, thinking about the the release and working with go to market and pricing and packaging and, um, and, and, you know, but I, I, we still are able to collaborate on the, uh, what I think of as the fun bits is the ideating on, on the product itself. Brilliant. All right. So let's talk about Vercel, right? Where you work uh, right now. So I personally, um, I, I double with front end. I've, I've worked, I've built websites before for the longest time in my career. So help me understand the value proposition because I've never used personally Vercel myself. Um, what's the added value of this entire company and the product line that you have? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And, and it, it, it's one that has taken me a little while to, to internalize myself because I actually come from back end. Um, I also only dabble in, in, in front end really like, you know, I, I, I came up in network engineering and, uh, you know, did some sysadmin on Unix machines, like way back in the day, um, you know, did some BGP. And so like the idea of like, and I worked on websites as well, but like, you know, my heart is in like the, the bits on the wire. Um, and so I came to Vercel, uh, to, to really focus on like our, our, storage our compute platform our network and and now our, our storage products so like i i think of myself still fairly back end and so um it took me a bit to get this but like what what is really cool about Vercel uh is that we work on what's called framework defined infrastructure and like i think of myself again as as like an old school like like back end guy and so i i think about like Maybe I need to build a Kubernetes cluster. Maybe I need to provision this resource. Like, let's throw that out. Because, you know, despite the fact that I do, I've done that and I'm familiar with it and I feel comfortable with it, it actually kind of sucks. Um, and like, imagine a world where you, where you can run your site and it can scale and you don't have to think about that nonsense. Like, that's really what, what Vercel is, is, is doing like some really amazing developer experience tools that allow you to grow up. So like, let's say you take your framework, your, your, you know, let's say it's Next.js, which Vercel, um, Vercel builds, Vercel invented and builds. It's the most popular React framework. Um, and you just like go, you, you don't have to think about its deployment. You just go build your app. And when you, you know, push up your Git repository or, you know, I guess you can do it from the command line too, but like, just like, Open a pull request, you know, click that, you know, merge button that is is so gnarly on GitHub, 
And what Vercel will do is like, oh, oh, cool, you, you've updated your main branch. Let me do a deployment of that for you. And it will handle all the all the gnarly bits. Oh, okay, so you wrote some, some JavaScript that wants to run on the server. Cool, I'll provision a serverless function for you. Or I'll provision... Um, you know, some some running at the edge JavaScript, you know, we will put it in 18 regions across the world. It'll be as close to your user as possible. Great. Um, and we'll handle all that that deployment for you. You know, like we've got we've got people running Kubernetes clusters. We've got people, you know, thinking about um, um, our interconnectivity between, you know, data centers. You just run get push. So that's really the the value prop of, of Vercel is, is you focus on your stuff and we'll focus on deploying it Amazing. As so, so, who, as possible. so who is it for? Because obviously with, with anything cloud, and it, it seems to me like a, a pass uh, proposition, right? Like a, a platform as a service, um, like the Heroku maybe of, the, of, 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 of JavaScript in, in a way, I'm not sure. Um, but like, who is the target audience and where do you fall on the control spectrum? So, and what worries me, for example, as, as a developer, right? I deploy my app. I don't really know what's going on. It it's automatically scales. Fantastic. Great. But someone DDoSes me. Someone tr tries to abuse my platform. How can I mitigate against getting a hefty bill that I don't know how to deal with, like at the end of the month, for example? Yeah, for sure. Um, and, th and, and that's what, you, what you're saying is, is super important. Um, and so that's... That's definitely one of the things that is like top of mind mind for us. We call it a denial of wallet attack, right? Like a, a DOS attack is one thing, um, but like it will also incur can incur additional spend, and that's that's super frustrating. Um, like so, we, we we we're very thoughtful about denial of service attacks um, in terms of like protecting the platform, protecting your site, keeping it online. Um, you know, we have uh, we we have the Vercel firewall, which will uh, you know detect denial of service attacks and and just you know shut them down, mitigate, and that's that's great. But like actually, it's the accidental um, problems that that lead to uh, that, that 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 then lead to uncontrolled spend or can um, you know it, we can we can shut down all the network activity le leading to a DOS attack. But like if you just like put a wall loop accidentally in your serverless function deploy it that can get that can get very expensive um so we're working on a number of uh, uh a number of pieces to 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 help mitigate that um those sorts of like accidental spends there's and and we also give you a couple of choices as well so we have you know what we think of as traditional serverless functions they run in a single region on some hardware that's you know you know, you, you run inside a container, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty standard, pretty traditional, you know, we, we, we don't make you think about the, the container bits and, and how it's deployed. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's, it's, it's like a Lambda, it's like a, an Azure function, those sorts of things. And the way that those uh, things are charged, like if you want to think about the billing, is for how long they've been executing. Um, uh, you know, we, we think you know you take the size of the container and you multiply it by the time it's running and, and that's how the bill comes out um, and that's cool uh, for a lot of uh, uh, a lot of applications it's super not cool for many others let's say you want to talk to a database or more you know a, a contemporary 
uh, uh, look is talking to an AI backend. Let's say you want to talk to Chat, chat GPT. That thing does not respond quickly. Uh, you know, it, it takes its time, streams your data back, and so if you're paying for every second or millisecond or whatever that you're that you're executing that function that's talking to Chat GPT, that gets very expensive very quickly. Um, the the nice thing about you know, the Vercel platform is we have an option for you and that's uh, edge functions. And those, uh, instead of running in a traditional container, um, those run in a V8 isolate. And actually the cost model is is very different. They only uh, are billed for the time, for the CPU time that they're using. So you can just like sit there and idle. Um, you know, you can you can sleep, you, you know, put a two minute sleep in there and and you're only paying for, for the, the actual startup and shutdown, like while it's sleeping, you're not paying. That means that while it's talking to a database or talking to jet, chat GPT, you're not paying. Um, so so uh, we're actually really flexible in the way that you sort of think about um, you know, your, your computing and what you're doing uh, and, and you can sort of tailor your, your costs in a sense to that. Now, in some sense, this violates what I was saying where like you don't have to think about your uh, uh, your ultimate infrastructure. This is like one place where you do have to think about your infrastructure. So like work, absolute work to be done here on our side, like the developer experience, we need to tighten that up um, so that like maybe you don't have to think about it at all. Um, but today, like we we do have some some knobs you can turn to avoid um, avoid that spend. Help me understand a little bit because I was reading a, a small article uh, on on Vercel website about you know Wasm and edge edge computing or edge functions and whatnot. What, what's the added value of having code run at the edge? And give me some use cases for that because I I want to you know understand what are some of the applications that could be deployed uh, to the edge. And because I'm also a backend person, in my opinion, always there's there's the, the business logic that needs to run in the backend somewhere. Latency is a concern, you know, the, the, the proximity of where the front end runs to my backend is also something that we always need to think about, especially when dealing with problems at scale and cost optimization and all of that stuff, right? Yeah, no, you're 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 100% right. So um, we we introduced uh, our edge functions and they run in the data center closest to the user. And you hear that and you're like, great, solves all my problems. You know, um, Now my users don't have to backhaul all the way to um, IED1 or you know, US East 1, how, however you talk about it. Like the center of the universe for, for the internet is Ashburn, Virginia, like right outside of Dulles Airport. Um, and, and that's cool. But like, if you've got users in Tokyo, if you've got users in in London, like, man, you know, the speed of light isn't so fast that that their requests from their browser going to 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 Virginia, you know, that that adds up. And so, you know, I I heard about edge computing, and I'm like, great, this solves all our problems. We'll just put computing in our uh, in every region, so that a user in Tokyo goes and hits a compute endpoint in Tokyo and and boom, everything's everything's solved. But no, as you point out, like it's actually a little bit trickier than that. And so you need to be a little bit more thoughtful about what's happening and 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 what you're doing. Because if your database lives in uh, uh, Ashburn, Virginia, and your compute lives in Tokyo, then you're going back and forth. You know, if you do one query, it's fine. If you do ten queries, you know. 
that all of a sudden it would have been better to just route the user to to IED one to begin with. So you're you're absolutely right that there's a lot of a lot of nuance here, um, and actually that's why we we added regional edge functions. Um, so uh, you know edge functions, yeah, can operate in, in any of our regions. We've got computing there to, to to handle them, and it's great for something that needs to uh, make a a, a thoughtful decision, but doesn't actually need a, a backend data source. Let me give you a, a concrete example. Um, so our middleware product um, uh, will, uh, you know, will operate on the edge. It'll it'll run some compute in the closest region to the user and do it like in front of your requests. So um, let's say a, a request comes in uh, for your for your homepage. Um, you know, edge middleware can run right there. Um, and it'll run in it's like this super lightweight V8 isolate, so it's like the 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 you know best server side latency that really you can get. You know, no real cold starts to speak of. Um, super super duper uh, quick to execute, and then it can just like look at the GeoIP, for example, and say, oh, you're coming from Berlin. I want to give you my my German homepage. You're coming from uh, Amsterdam. I, you know, I'll I'll give you a a homepage that's that's tailored uh, for the Dutch audience, uh, and so you can make like it, it's so middleware for example is is perfect for simple decisions that don't need a a, a database. Um, now, how many things don't really need a data source? Well, you know, some like I think that's a good example the the routing for example. But then, um, what's cool is that. You know, we can we can actually start bringing more data to the edge as well. Um, so we've got a, a, you know, a you know some databases are doing multi-region where, where you can have a read region close to the user. Um, so that helps. So you can push both the data and the the, the compute out to the edge. Um, you know, one novel thing that we've actually done is called edge config. Um, instead of pushing it into the region, we push it as close to the function as you can get. So when you're running an edge function, like that data has, you know, millisecond latency uh, to read. And that's perfect for things like A-B testing, um, feature flags, uh, that sort of stuff, where you really want to be able to go to a dynamic data source, but you don't want to have to backhaul all the way to, to Ashburn, Virginia. You want that data just as close to the function as you can get it. Um, and so that's, Super exciting. So I think we'll see more of that. But in the meantime, uh, we've also given you the ability to run your your edge functions. So like the lightweight part, the V8 isolate, you know, super fast cold starts uh, in a particular region. So like it's kind of the best of both worlds. So you can say, well, this edge function always runs in IED one or US East one, however you want to think about that. Um, but like it's it's super lightweight as opposed to a serverless function, which is good for heavy compute. But you know, has cold starts. Um, so, and again, like our goal is to to make you think about these things less. Like you know, we want to handle the the infrastructure for you. We'll just let the framework. You know, we'll let you write the code. The framework will actually you know new up the infrastructure for you. And so, like you know, the next the next iteration needs to simplify this as well. Like we, we you shouldn't have to think about this so much. Got it. Amazing. Uh, Ed, this has been really, really insightful. I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, I want to ask you the very last question for this episode, which is, what is what is a piece of technology that is exciting you about the future? Like, what are you interested in diving into 
down the line. Uh, what's exciting you right now? I mean, surely everybody says AI, right? Um, no, but it is actually, it is AI. Like I don't, I spent a lot of years not paying any attention to AI. Like, you know, I, I had a friend who was like, oh, I'm, I'm super pumped about this. Like, I'm going to learn about, you know, um, you know, all these various models. And I was like, that's cool. But obviously we've reached, uh, I, I thought it was going to go nowhere, right? Like, I'm like, ah, you know, this is dumb. Um, obviously we've reached a point where, where that's not, that's not true. I was wrong. Um, I love being wrong about these, these sorts of bets because it allows me to be very lazy. Um, but of course now I'm, I'm behind the curve. And so now I need to go like really invest. I've, I've played around with chat GPT and I've played around with, uh, you know, co-pilot and those sorts of things. And they're phenomenal. Um, but we're, we're super early. And so I think that, the um, you know, I've, I've, my, my former boss, uh, Kath, uh, Kath Korovich, she's over at Google, like trying to figure out what, how we're really going to change the world with this stuff. And I think that that's, that's, what's really exciting. I'm, I'm super glad that, uh, Vercel, for example, had, you know, we, we just announced this AI accelerator program. Um, like we're, we're just at the very beginning of this. And so that's, I need to go. I, I I've got a lot of learning to do. I've got a lot of catching up. We all do. We all do. Believe me. Uh, and this has been super fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time. And I hope everybody watching has enjoyed the episode as much as I did. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me.